there is so much you can do. Have hope because every single element of this can be really well managed. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. It's PCOS Awareness Month and one in 10 women suffer from this complicated condition. So I bring to you Dr. Fiona McCulloch, who is the author of Eight Steps for Reversing PCOS. And I know many of you have been awaiting this episode. And I would like to thank the experts in PCOS who posed questions that I should ask Fiona. So we cover that and so many of the nuances not covered in her book. So definitely take a listen. And if you like this episode or know of someone struggling with PCOS, please do share it. And you can also check out my Spotify podcast playlist for other PCO experts that I have spoken to. So let's get right down to this conversation with Fiona. Fiona, it's so nice to have you on the FemPower Health podcast. Welcome. So Dr. Lara Bryden had introduced us, and she has such great respect for you and your perspective on PCOS, and it's such a complicated condition. I've interviewed a bunch of experts, but in reading your book and preparing for this episode, I knew this would be a wow conversation. So I'm really looking forward to having this discussion with you. What I really wanted to do is use this time for getting your unique perspective and voiceover on the things that may not necessarily have been covered in your book. And I even took some questions from folks online and some of the PCOS experts that I know who respect you and wanted to hear straight from you. Tell us about yourself. Thanks, Georgie. And it's just great to be here because I've been following your podcast and watching it. And I just, I'm really honored to be, to be able to talk to your audience today. I'm a naturopathic doctor from Toronto. I've been in practice for 21 years, and I own a clinic called White Lotus Integrative Medicine. We practice uh, primarily with uh, women's health hormones, especially polycystic ovary syndrome. I wrote uh, Eight Steps to Reverse Your PCOS, and I have PCOS myself, so I'm quite interested in it. And we work with thousands of patients with this condition. So we have a lot of clinical experience with different treatments um, at our clinic as well. There were a lot of great quotes in your book about how complex PCOS is. So it was really hard to come up with which one I should pick. But I thought this was a nice short one that got straight to the point. And I'd love for you to expand on it. It's that PCOS is not a fixed diagnosis but a disorder of many faces. So tell us what that means to you. Yeah, so PCOS is quite, you know, it changes a lot throughout the lifespan. So even in one individual, the way that PCOS presents in them can change at different times of their life or in different situations. But then from person to person, it can also vary quite a bit. So even though, you know, we have been trained in medicine to think of it as a certain type of presentation, there's actually a lot of different ways it can present. Um, So one of the things I find very um, helpful is to teach patients how to identify that in themselves to know how PCOS might be affecting them at different times in life. And in case that they're not sure if they have it, um, if they don't maybe have any practitioners around them who are uh, more focused on that, how to identify if they might actually have it, uh, despite not having the most obvious Um, of the symptoms expected by the medical profession. Tell us more about that. And part of why I'm asking is, you know, I recently interviewed Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor, who has been studying women's health for um, over 40 years. And she talked about PCOS really being an issue around androgen excess. But it seems that criteria has been changing over time. And as we all know, criteria gets established, and then there needs to be time for the doctors to know what the new criteria is, and it takes time for it to get into um, clinical practice. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on where we are with the clarity and the consistency around diagnosing PCOS. And maybe we can even get into some of the misunderstandings. So for example, some people think that if you're overweight, you have PCOS, and if you're thin, you can't have PCOS. Um, So again, like you mentioned in your quote, this is really complex. Um, Even as simple as whether or not you have PCOS can be complex. So, So talk to us about that. 
a lot of this has come from the name polycystic ovary syndrome and expecting to see polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So polycystic ovaries are very different than other types of ovarian cysts. What they are is partially developed follicles, which are the eggs as they're trying to ovulate, they kind of get stuck. And then in a PCOS ultrasound, what we'll tend to see is a lot of eggs that are partially developed, and this has been given the name polycystic ovaries. So even though they're not really cysts, um, it has a certain appearance. Now because of that name, I think, a lot of people have taken it to be the condition. So unfortunately, you can have that appearance to your ultrasound and not have the syndrome PCOS, and you can also have PCOS and not have the ultrasound. The ultrasound is just one element that we sometimes can see in PCOS, but really PCOS is about androgen excess. So it's a syndrome, it's a hormone imbalance where there's too much testosterone and the relatives of testosterone like androstenedione, DHEA, those hormones are too high in PCOS. So ultimately the diagnosis uh, does include that as one of the elements, um, androgen excess, either clinical symptoms or in labs, which is also very confusing because sometimes labs look normal, but a person has symptoms. Um, and then ovulatory problems. So basically if a patient has ovulation that's more you know, far apart or they skip periods or don't have periods, that's another criteria. So you basically need two of those three criteria, either the androgen excess, the polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, or the ovulatory problems. Two of those three would give a diagnosis of PCOS, but it's very uh, controversial because a lot of people you know, may not have the high androgens in their blood, but they have symptoms, they have the ultrasound, it goes away, comes back. So it's very confusing. And I think the Androgen Access Society has a different set of criteria where the androgen excess is required and uh, either the ultrasound or the ovulatory problem is the second criteria. And I actually agree with that more. I think that's a much more accurate way of diagnosing it. Uh, the other way is the Rotterdam criteria, which are, you know, more, uh, it's a bit old. And there's a lot of controversy around whether that ultrasound should even be in there or not. So yeah, so it is very confusing. Um, I always like to just simplify it to androgen excess and you know we do generally see some kind of either ovulatory problem or a problem with many many follicles in the ovaries so when it's sort of understood uh, that way and knowing that it can change in life and how it can it becomes obvious to me when somebody has it or when they don't okay that makes sense thank you so much for clarifying and you know there's a lot of presumptions that we can make in there with it being hard to diagnose pcos trying to get your doctor to understand what's happening and advocating for yourself. And I would really tell listeners that reading your book would really help understand all the different nuances that um, can happen with PCOS and talking to the doctor, et cetera. But I also think it would just be beneficial to help women understand not only their own bodies, but having that conversation with their doctor. But let's talk about some of these nuances here. So first, you alluded to how PCOS can change over your lifetime. So first, let's start with teens. So we know that one's menstrual cycle doesn't really normalize until someone gets into their early 20s. But there could potentially be this misunderstanding of based on what's happening in with your period in your teen years, is it PCOS? Is it just you being a teenager and things are still normalizing? So tell us a bit more about those teenage years. The way that the ovary sets up its communication with the brain and ovulation starts. So when we're children, we don't ovulate. We have we really don't make these hormones like estrogen and progesterone in any significant amount. Once we go through puberty, the adrenals actually activate first and they start to make androgen precursors, which can turn into testosterone. And so it's, it's almost natural to have high androgens uh, in the teenage years. Um, they are the more dominant hormone first. And then it takes time and establishment of a cycle to get the other hormones to be the more dominant hormones like estrogen and progesterone. So in teens, this can take a few years to develop. And what 
we see a lot of the time, unfortunately, is that, you know, it is normal for teens to have higher levels of testosterone and androgens. You know, we always see acne. Um, this is very common, you know, and this is part of why. Um, but unfortunately, what's been happening now is that a lot of teens are, you know, having their first period and maybe they're not having their next one for a few months. They go to the doctor, they get an ultrasound. And if you take many teenager, you know, if you take uh, many teenagers and you give them a pelvic ultrasound in that phase, a lot of them look like they have polycystic ovaries, but that may completely go away as soon as their uh, ovulation. Um, establishes itself. So unfortunately, what's happening is those teens are going, they're getting, you know, diagnosed with PCOS based on having things like acne or uh, delayed cycles, which could be normal. And then seeing the ultrasound, then they're put on the birth control pill right away. And that's, that's what's happening a lot. So it's quite controversial. In teens, they really have to have strong symptoms and they have to be persistent in order to diagnose a teenager with PCOS. And there's a lot of movement towards making sure they have all three criteria and that everything else is excluded. Like it's not part of their normal puberty process that this is happening. Yeah, so it is, it is something that should be kind of hesitated around when we're looking at a teen before diagnosing it. You know, as you were talking, I'm thinking about how one may think as a teenager, right? So we have this siloed healthcare system and I as a teenager may have acne. And I just interviewed somebody on uh, acne and so this is definitely top of mind. And we spoke about root causes like hormone imbalances, the gut microbiome, et cetera. And so for acne, one may go to an OBGYN, they could go to their primary care doctor, they could go to their dermatologist. And depending on where you're entering, in the healthcare system, it could impact what you're being prescribed. But let's say PCOS is the reason. And so depending on which doctor you go to, you may or may not be properly diagnosed with the root cause, which impacts the prescription or treatment that you're being given. And so I'd love to take this as a, a case study. And again, this is a very simplistic example, but I'd love to get your comments to this dynamic of, of what might happen. Yeah, I think I think it's really just about helping patients really understand that this is, you know, something that can happen in this age group. It is normal to have high androgens. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have PCOS. And there's, you know, many other options, but birth control is an option. And I think the only problem becomes when we just like quickly diagnose, give birth control, and the person's on that birth control for 10 years, really, we have no idea what they have. And if they do have PCOS or not, and they come off of that, and they're like, I have PCOS, you know, and maybe they don't. Um, so I think it's really helpful to uh, really understand what are the patient's goals, um, what are the pros and cons, but just so that they understand that, they may not even be able to tell if they have PCOS until some time goes by. So the treatments could be customized to that. And as long as, I think the problem becomes when the patient thinks that they have PCOS in their mind, they have it, uh, but really it's hard to say. So, um, you know, you are bypassing that root cause. And with acne, you know, some of the root causes are immune and gut and inflammation and all sorts of things. Now, if we shut all the hormones down, acne will get better because hormones are just one of the triggers for acne, but not, there's many patients who have high androgens that don't have acne. So um, it's, there is a predisposition that has to be there to acne as well. So it's really about like understanding the individual person, but also for some people, maybe that is the best way for them and the, you know, the treatment that works for them. So I think as long as the patient understands and has that really good, like, you know, comprehensive look at everything with their case, this can be handled completely differently. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, I don't know if there's a nuanced additional answer that you would want to share, but there was a specific question that I'd received when I posed on social media what people might want to ask. And it was around stress at puberty and activating the HPA access triggering PCOS. So is there any additional comments to that specific question that you wanted to share? 
Yeah, so this is like a good question. I can see sometimes uh, online there's a lot of different information going around and it spreads like wildfire, um, unfortunately, and sometimes it gets a bit out of control. So something that's like a small little nugget of data that we might have seen in one study can now become blown up into something that it's not. So I've seen some in information online recently saying that, okay, stress is what causes PCOS. Like it's only caused by stress and if you would deal with that, everything would be better. That's actually never been shown to be true. Um, we know about epigenetics and PCOS and that certain times in our development, we're more susceptible to developing changes that will affect our glands and our hormones for our life. The top time that that can happen is actually in utero when we're developing as an embryo because there are certain timings that the ovary develops. If something happens at that particular timing, we, it's been shown that this can cause PCOS. Um, in animals, for example, they can actually cause PCOS by giving an animal this endocrine disruption at this specific timing of window. Puberty theoretically is another timing for this because there's a time called adrenarch before we go through uh, puberty, before we have our first period where the adrenals activate. And there's possibly some epigenetic effects of stressors at this particular time, but we don't have any solid evidence to say that that is the cause. It's possible, but the evidence that we do have points more to the uh, fetal development timing um, because that is when the glands develop in a more primary sense. And so we know that, you know, the adrenals develop then, so do the ovaries. We do see those timings. It's also possible that that could be happening at puberty too. Um, and so there's some preliminary info, but it's definitely not conclusive, like what you would see online where, you know, some people are saying it's all from that. I would say it's very complicated and we don't really know. Yes, and that's really what's so hard because, you know, social media, for example, has been great because there's so much awareness being created. But the challenge is that it's snippets of information. So we have, I think it's now 90 second reels and the quick picture that comes into your feed or the quick quote that someone puts up. And we're in this quick fix society that probably got exacerbated when social media hit because everything does have to be that quick snippet of information to, to gain your um, attention. So I appreciate you adding that additional context. So another question that came up since you did bring up epigenetics is many were asking if their daughter will get PCOS and then what someone can do to prevent that from happening. And you did mention that PCOS can be developed in utero, but I think people are looking at, oh my goodness, how will I know for sure if I have it Will my kid get it? And oh my goodness, what can I do, if anything, to make sure that they don't get it? So can you just expand on that, please? This is a question I get all the time because I've been posting a lot about the epigenetics. And so the top thing to think about with PCOS is the genes for PCOS are primarily genes that give us certain benefits. So they're genes that, that cause us to make more androgens, more testosterone, but the other genes that they have linked to not, it's not a genetic disorder where it's directly inherited, but there's genes that like increase the likelihood. So the other genes are conservation genes, metabolic conservation genes, which help us survive famines in times when we don't have enough food. So if you can imagine, there's really good reasons that we have those genes, and those genes actually make us stronger. So there's certain, you know, people with PCOS I view as sort of gene genetic variants that, that have benefits with the androgen excess, there's a lot of benefits to that in that there's increased survival in times of famine, increased muscle mass, later menopause, meaning that you can have babies a little later. There's other interesting theories around spacing of babies further apart increases survival. So it's all part of just the, the complexity and the mosaic of human humans in general. So the first thing is, it, will my daughter have this? this is not necessarily bad. So this is just like a variation of people, you know, where we have all these little variations. Some of these are good things. So androgen excess, we, you know, there's been a lot of benefits to that. And we see a lot of the patients with PCOS do very well in athletics and sports. A lot of the young uh, athletes have, you know, who are very, very high um, level have PCOS. So there's, there's those benefits. So your, your children will get those genes 
you know, uh, anyway, some of those are good, but the environment and the problems that it causes are what we want to look at. So obviously metabolic conservation, where we're great at storing energy, this is where insulin resistance comes from. Being great at storing energy is fantastic when we have famines. Being great at storing energy is not so good when we can go through the drive through and you know, fast food is 99 cents uh, compared to fruits and vegetables. So it's like those impacts on those survivor genes are what set us up to gain a, a lot of abdominal fat. So it's that combination. And the other element is there are certain parts of the PCOS that are more problematic when they're younger, like the androgen excess, that decreases with age. So there's ways to manage it younger and then get the benefits later. So it's always like, how can we prevent it in our daughters? Well, some of it you can't prevent because some of it's genetic susceptibility, but the, the rest you can do so much about. So um, in utero, just eating healthfully, um, you know, trying to do, you know, as much as you can just to have a healthy lifestyle. Um, but the androgen element isn't necessarily something that you can change that much when you're pregnant outside of insulin resistance. But when your daughter gets to, you know, into childhood and getting them into some sports or seeing what kind of activities they enjoy, uh, teaching them about healthy lifestyle, and then managing the androgen excess when it needs to be managed, all those things can be done and are, it's very possible to do them and still get, you know, all those benefits of having PCOS at a little bit of an older age. We just see so many benefits of that. So, um, yeah, so I tend to not worry so much about it and rather just focus on individual health in each situation. That makes a lot of sense. I love that. Now, going to the other end, because you were saying there are benefits as we age, so interestingly, someone had asked you to comment on PCOS and perimenopause. So what should we know about that? Yeah, so interestingly, the we do know that androgens rescue follicles in their primordial state. They bring them up to the antral state. So the primordial state is a very tiny follicle that's really potentially could become a hormone producing egg and androgens help them get to that point. As we get older, all patients, their androgens start to go down quite a lot actually. And that's part of why, it's part of the whole process of what happens when we get to perimenopause. We are running low on eggs or the eggs are behaving differently. They ovulate earlier because of this uh, difference in their behavior and um, cycles get shorter. Androgens keep them going a little bit longer. And um, so what we'll tend to see is that the perimenopause happens a little bit later. Like we'll see patients with PCOS having, you know, normal length cycles instead of short cycles in their 40s, whereas they might have had long cycles earlier. Uh, patients without PCOS generally start shortening their cycles in their late 30s, early 40s. So this is all delayed a little bit. And then the actual menopause is also delayed. So we do see like it's, it's possible to have babies a little bit later. Um, the age of menopause is a little bit later. It's also possible to uh, gain more muscle mass um, in this age range, which can be challenging because of the, the androgens just help a lot with that. We do see quite a few different benefits um, with aging, with having PCOS. So it's not all bad, that's for sure. Wow. What about the symptoms that tend to come with perimenopause, such as hot flashes and weight gain and migraines and some different mood disorders? What are you seeing there? So some studies have looked at that and what they found is the hot flashes, there's no difference really. And then I would tend to agree with that. I tend to see those as variable from person to person. There's some patients who tend to have high estrogen uh, before. Some of them, ha some patients with PCOS have that and some don't. So I find that is, isn't really that different. The um, other elements, uh, similarly, I find vary from person to person. Um, but the insulin resistance part, where the weight gain around the midsection, that tends to be a little worse in PCOS because androgens can cause that type of weight gain. 
Um, there's also, you know, when we lose estrogen entirely, there can be some more um, abdominal weight gain or change in where the, uh, the fat lands, so to more around the midsection. And when you add that with the androgens, that can be a little worse in PCOS. But it is very individual. Like there's a lot of patients who don't have a lot of insulin resistance either. So it is uh, something that just sort of needs a reassessment. Okay, got it. Is it bad that you can have children later or that you hit menopause later in life? I don't know if you have any uh, comments to that. No, it seems actually to be good, if anything, um, to to hit menopause later because we just have a little bit of a longer exposure to the, the hormones that are beneficial for our bodies and bone density. Having children later, I think, is, is really just... It's still, you know, our age still affects egg quality regardless, but the, the quantity of eggs is higher. So it just uh, gives that little window. But again, I also don't want to make people think they should wait until, you know, some of the celebrities you'll see having babies really late are using, using egg donors. Uh, so it's not necessarily true that, you know, you can just have a baby at 48. That's still really hard and almost impossible for most unless there's something else being done there. But yeah, like if you see a lot of patients in their early 40s, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our PCOS patients do conceive and I think that's, that's totally good. It's a great thing, especially with, you know, um, life being so busy and it, it taking longer to get through everything before we are ready to have kids. I know, no kidding. So what I thought we could do now is go through just a couple of areas that I think are important because, you know, PCOS is complex and generally healthcare is complex and we tend to get treated as if things are in a silo. So going with this theme of complexity, I wanted to cover thyroid conditions and PCOS as well as the gut microbiome. And given a lot of the episodes I've recorded lately, I have an especial uh, passion right now for uh, the gut microbiome. So stay tuned for those who are also interested because we do cover that a lot uh, the rest of this season. So why don't we talk about thyroid and PCOS first? Just like a quick summary of things that people should be aware of. And again, you provide a lot of great details in your book, but I think just a high level set of information that you want people to at least walk away with as an initial understanding. Yeah, so autoimmune thyroid disease is about three times more common in PCOS patients than in other patients. And it is one of the most common uh, conditions generally that we see in women of reproductive age. So having positive thyroid antibodies, this is known you know, as Hashimoto's. We see this a lot. And the problem with that is you know, PCOS is inflammatory. It has a lot of inflammation. So it does lend to other inflammatory conditions to develop because of that. And the other problem with thyroid is if a patient is hypothyroid, even slightly, it adds into all the metabolic problems in PCOS. So those two really are important to make sure, you know, that, that that's checked for anyone who has PCOS because of the impact it has, but also the increased likelihood of it being there in the first place. Yeah, so I, I always do a full thyroid panel for my patients um, who have PCOS on the first visit if they haven't had one. And it's actually surprising how many people have never had that done. Yes, no, I've done a lot of interviews with patients and experts on thyroid conditions, and I've heard from them as well that TSH does seem to be the common test that a lot of clinicians will do. And you've done such a great job in your book about the different tests that need to be done to fully understand thyroid disease. However, I think what's really interesting is how the symptoms of a lot of different conditions overlap so much that it may take time to be properly diagnosed. So maybe you can just talk about that, uh, any additional comments you have on the dynamics of PCOS and thyroid disease. Yeah, it's, it's just a huge thing. It's so common. And then the other element I find is it really affects like thyroid, especially like lipids and fatty liver. And it's just if the person is on the brink of getting insulin resistance and then they have hypothyroid, like they will go there. So it's a really, you want your thyroid to be functioning very well and for it not to have any, you know, anything that's out of, you know, the ideal range. Um, just to make sure that you're not struggling harder than you have to with other elements of PCOS. Okay. And then what about the gut microbiome and PCOS? Is there anything that we need to know there? 
this is a really interesting area. So, yeah, so I love that you were talking about how, uh, you know, so many different conditions are linked to this. And it's, it's so true. And the same is true for PCOS. They've actually done quite a bit of research into the microbiome. There's definitely differences. So we can see a, a huge cha uh, change in the diversity. So there's a lot less diversity um, in the gut in PCOS. There's also, depending on the level of insulin resistance, there will be metabolic shifts. So we'll see a shift towards the types of bacteria that we'll tend to see in people with diabetes or insulin resistance. This is in my opinion, related more so to the level of that that's there. And they don't know what comes first. You know, they're still trying to figure that out, but it seems like it's all, you know, just part of the same net where it's a cycle that keeps everything going. The gut keeps the, you know, the insulin resistance going and vice versa. And there's also some bacteria that have been associated with androgen excess, like Prevotella, that might uh, have been found to be increased in PCOS as well. Um, so yeah, so they're still looking at a lot of this and determining what's going on, um, but it's a big difference for uh, in the gut microbiome in patients with PCOS and without. And they've also found the vaginal microbiome is different as well in patients with PCOS. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You know, I know that we understand the importance of the gut microbiome and having this balanced or optimized gut health. But it seems like there's still so much to understand about, okay, we know that your gut health is not optimized, but then what do you do next? And we know diet and nutrition is, is really important, but there's you know a lot more that we need to understand. And so in lieu of all of that um, understanding, what can people do in the meantime? Is it, let's follow your eight steps, um, and let's see what the research shows for these other things, or is there anything else that we should consider with this knowledge about the gut microbiome and PCOS? Yeah, so I think one of the misconceptions around those tests is that, oh, you know, you do this test and a lot of these tests are PCR. So basically what they're picking up is dead, dead DNA, like DNA from dead organisms. So it's very, very sensitive, firstly. Can pick up things that aren't necessarily a problem, fragments of things, you know, so it can be misleading in that sort of way. But I think one of the misconceptions is, oh, if you're low in this, you will just take this probiotic and it will just, re you know, replace what you are missing. But that's not generally how probiotics work. So they have an influence on the gut as they pass through, but they don't just like land there and start growing and change the whole microbiome. What we know about the microbiome is it's very complicated. It starts, there's a lot of different factors in it. A lot of it is related to our, even our family history, you know, what did we inherit from our parents, but also like what is the state in our body? What are we eating that is feeding those bacteria? And you know, what is the overall hormonal status? So the hormones in our body affect our microbiome. The immune system affects our microbiome. What we eat massively affects our microbiome toxins do. So it's really not as simple as taking something to fix it, replenish it, but more so learning over time, you know, how to, what, what are the factors that cause this shift in the microbiome in a, in a human being? And then that's what we still need to learn more about. Um, but we do know that food shifts the microbiome massively. So for example, if someone were to eat a high sugar diet, their microbiome will become more like someone with insulin resistance. Um, so these elements are often the result of something rather than underlying, you know, the underlying cause. If you feed a, an, or, an organism what it likes, it will grow and it will make more babies. So there are certain organisms that like sugar. And so a lot of it is around that, like really understanding that whole idea. And not to say probiotics aren't good, they are great and they have a lot of health benefits, but it's, it's just not as simple as that. It's really about understanding the entire person's physiology. And you know, even going back to those eight steps, it's really about the foundations of health in anyone is just like addressing all those things that we know help support health um, and you know, a good gut health. Um, so for example, you could have a poor microbiome because you know, you have, you're not making enough digestive enzymes to break your food down and that's encouraging the wrong 
organisms to grow. So we want to look at the whole person's digestive process, their overall health, and that's really the best way to address it. Um, so yeah, it's a super interesting area. Okay, no, for sure. Now, since you brought up sugar, I know that you put in your book that the number one thing to avoid if you have PCOS is sugar. But the other thing I wanted to address is carbs. Now, again, because of how social media operates, it seems like there are these big viewpoints of carbs are terrible, carbs are great, and then there are people somewhere in the middle. But, you know, what I think is important is to get the facts on this. And you had a really interesting way of covering this in your book. So for example, there's all these different food indexes like the fullness factor, the satiety index. Um, And it's a way that I'd never really seen different types of foods being evaluated. So talk to us more about how these different indexes can help us evaluate if I'm a PCOS patient you know, which carbs are good, whether or not I should be having them, or just generally uh, diet and how one should look at the food that they ingest in order to um, minimize the symptoms of PCOS. Yeah, this is like a big one because there's a lot of division around, you know, just nutrition communities generally about low carb diets. And so a lot of this has kind of come from that area and that now, okay, carbs are either de- they're either good or they're bad, you know, depending on what kind of following, you know, what you're following. So I don't view them like this at all. But carbs do have the capacity to raise our blood sugar uh, more than any other macronutrients. So because of that, we want to make sure, be, you know, because anything that raises our blood sugar will raise our insulin. And unfortunately, with PCOS, sometimes patients are prone to hypoglycemia, where if they eat a lot of carbs without proper balance with that meal, they'll get hypoglycemia. It sets them up to kind of go on that, that roller coaster of blood sugar and, you know, causes a lot of problems for them. So um, carbs, though, are very beneficial, for example, for the microbiome in the gut. A lot of the microbiome likes carbs uh, to eat, and carbs are also calming. So I do recommend carbs for patients with PCOS, depending on their level of insulin resistance. Uh, What I'll generally do is, is show patients how to create a balanced meal. Um, What softens the blood sugar impact of carbs is proteins, fibers, and healthy fats. So if you combine the meals that way, the carbs don't have that abrupt effect on blood sugar. And generally, you know, if someone were to have that once in a while without that, you know, balancing effect, it wouldn't have an impact. So it's more about what you do most of the time with the carbs. Um, Some people do much better on a moderately low-carb diet, meaning that they're not eating a huge amount of carbs, but they're also not anywhere near keto, but everyone's a little different. So I think it has to be varied from person to person. One of the problems with really low carb, uh, like keto, for example, a lot of people cannot sustain that long-term. It is, so it's something that will cause you to completely stop and then go back onto a different kind of approach, which may not work. Um, So that's a big issue. The other thing is that it can cause insomnia Uh, for a lot of people because they don't have any way to keep their blood sugar stable while they're sleeping. Um, Most of how we keep our blood sugar stable is through the glycogen storage in our liver, which is primarily put there by carbs. So when we're, you know, having our dinner and that's our last meal for the day, um, our glycogen in our liver is what keeps our blood sugar from crashing while we sleep. So if you're on a really low carb diet where you're really having very few carbs, there's a low glycogen in the liver and while you're sleeping, the blood sugar can go down. The way that we raise our blood sugar is by raising cortisol and that can wake you up. So this is a common thing for people on keto. They start waking up at 3 and 4 a.m. That's not good for PCOS either because we have lots of evidence that poor sleep, you know, high cortisol, all of these things are problematic. So I think it's about finding that balance, something sustainable that keeps the blood sugar nice and stable long term. And carbs are definitely part of that. So, um, but I always look at everyone as different. And for some people, certain things just work for them. And that's great. 
Okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I've seen this also because I've tried all sorts of different things to stay healthy and deal with various um, things that I have. Like, for example, I have endometriosis. And I do find that sometimes this black and white thinking we have around different types of foods or different types of diets is just really unfair because I do think um, it's really up to the individual. I mean, heck, there are times where a certain food will bother me and other times it doesn't. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with all the different things I'm doing at that time, um, which impacts it. So again, um, you know, I get, I think it's, again, important to hear all the different information we see on social media, but really taking it with a grain of salt, talking to our doctor, and um, really doing that experimentation with the guide of that expert to see what's right for us. So now let's get into medications. So one of the questions that one of the experts asked that I posed to you is uh, talking about cyclic progesterone. This is a treatment that we use at the clinic uh, with patients. So uh, not a lot of clinics are using this. And this was, uh, you know, obviously developed by Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor at UBC and through her many, many years of hard work researching this. Um, it is definitely what I find to be a, a really helpful tool to use in PCOS treatment. In particular, it's really helpful for patients who don't ovulate regularly, who ovulate late, or who have androgen excess. Um, and especially for lean PCOS patients, it's quite helpful because um, for them, they often have a lot less um, insulin resistance. And what you'll see, or what I see in my practice, is a lot of the patients coming to me with lean PCOS, they're already doing like nutrition. Like they're already, some of them are restricting carbs and, you know, it's not helping them at all. Like they're still just having the exact same problems. And they're like, well, what else do I do now, right? The only other option that's offered is the birth control pill. And so a lot of the time, you know, this is not something they want to do. It's not a stage they're at. Maybe they want to conceive. Maybe they want to ovulate, you know. Maybe they can't tolerate the pill. Maybe it's just something they're not willing to take this, you know, to have the side effects of. Cyclic progesterone does not have the, the clotting risks that birth control pills have. It does not stop your ovulation like birth control pills, so it doesn't entirely replace your hormones. Your own natural hormones are still there. It's a little more complex to implement clinically, so I would say that's the negative on it. It's just a little, it takes a bit more time to explain and have help patients understand how to use it, but it's a really amazing tool that I use all the time in my practice, and it makes a huge, a huge impact on androgen levels, um, a hormone called LH that's often too high in PCOS. We usually see that coming down a lot with this treatment. So it's, it's fantastic. And can you explain a bit about the timing for cyclic progesterone? Like when is it within their cycle that they should be taking it so that when they talk to their doctor, they're just a bit more informed? Yes. So it's, the, the standard weight is from cycle day 14 to 27, and the studies are on 300 milligrams of oral micronized progesterone. This is not the same thing as synthetic progestin. This is the top confusing thing I get is that how is this different from doing Provera midroxyprogesterone to induce a bleed? This is a very different substance in the first place. It's the same exact progesterone our body makes after we ovulate. This dose is approximately the amount that would be there after ovulation. So this medication is really mimicking exactly what would happen in our natural cycle if we were ovulating. So yeah, that's the standard. I do also use different doses for certain people for other situations. Um, for heavy periods, I might do a bit of a higher dose. And then if the, uh, if the patient was very sensitive, I've had a lot of success with doing low doses too. So another medication question that I had for you is around metformin versus berberine. So can you tell us a bit more about that for PCOS? Yeah, metformin is a diabetes medication and it's used to increase insulin sensitivity and it's got a lot of research for PCOS as well. Um, it's generally given for patients who have insulin resistance. Um, in my opinion, it doesn't, it's not a, a very strong medication to help PCOS. It has a mild effect. Um, it can have side effects like bloating, loose stools. 
Um, but it really, I see a lot of lean patients being given it, and it doesn't make that much of an impact for them. Berberine is like a herbal alternative to metformin. Um, it is made from, the berberine is in different types of plants. Golden seal is probably the most famous plant that has berberine. Um, it's similar in the way that it acts actually to metformin in that it improves insulin sensitivity. It changes the gut microbiome in a way that's very similar to metformin as well. So we just don't have, um, we don't see as many side effects with it. It can have some similar side effects, but a lot less than metformin. But I kind of view them as, you know, you could you know, take one or the other, and they both have a similar effect from what I see in patients, and studies show the same. Okay, so when it comes to those GI side effects, I'm so curious um, how those differ between the two medications, because I actually have a lot of familiarity with metformin, and I know that if you just start at the lowest dose and then titrate up, um, you can mitigate some of those GI symptoms. Is that the same with berberine? Yes, it's the same, actually. It's just less, I find. Um, but yeah, start low, go up slowly. Or, you know, if someone starts on the full dose and they have side effects, they can go down and start slowly. Um, but I also find those side effects go away. And same with metformin for a lot of people. Not everyone, but um, yeah, I find it to be, be very, very similar, actually. Okay, we know that mood disorders are another common symptom that are associated with PCOS. And in your chapter with Vitex, you had spoken about some interesting research and potential theories on why there may be that association with PCOS and um, mood disorders. So tell us more about that. Yeah, we see a lot of mood disorders in PCOS, ranging from anxiety, depression, and especially eating disorders are very common, especially bulimia and binge eating disorder. A lot of these uh, effects are complex. So uh, the androgens have definitely been associated to causing eating disorders, binge eating. Um, it can be triggered by androgens, and so that's a big part of things. Um, the other problems um, that can arise are because the hormones aren't quite balanced. You know, they're not doing the smooth transitions they would normally do. We all know what P PMS is like. That's when your hormones are crashing, you know, from high to low at the end of the cycle. So in PCOS, there's a lot of things that happen like that, where the hormones attempt to go up and then they go down, and it's unpredictable. So that's not a very nice thing for the brain to experience. So there is that element. We also have low levels of hormones like progesterone. And in some patients, they have low estrogen too. This is a, a misunderstanding that everyone has high estrogen. It's not the case. Some have actually low estrogen, which is required for mood. Secondly, there's a lot of inflammation. So inflammation has been linked over and over again to mood disorders like depression and anxiety. So that's definitely involved, I would say. And then blood sugar dysregulation. It really affects mood a lot. It can affect cortisol, as I mentioned before, sleep, all sorts of different things. And then having PCOS is stressful. So there's social stigmas around having those symptoms of hair growth on your face. Your hair is falling out. You have acne. You're not getting your periods. You can't get pregnant. You go to the doctor and they dismiss you. All those things are very stressful and challenging um, emotionally. So there's a whole bunch of different um, ways that it can affect mood. Yes, so it seems the theme here is this really is all so complex and you have to look at the individual. So you've done a beautiful job of breaking down the eight steps for PCOS. Now, can you actually cure PCOS? Well, you can't. So it's it's one of those things that is sort of there and it, um, you know, a lot of it's genetic and then there's epigenetic influences. So you cannot eliminate PCOS, but what you can do is manage the symptoms and reverse the symptoms to the best that is possible in your body. And not everyone may be able to entirely re reverse their symptoms. For someone who's had insulin resistance for 20 years, that's a very diff different situation than somebody who's had it for two years. So it's always individual and a lot of things can be reversed. I like to use that word because it's, you know, this, the condition and the predisposition is still there, but the symptoms can be managed and, you know, uh, handled throughout different phases of life. So yeah, although it cannot be cured, 
you know, some of those genes we don't want to cure. They're, they're kind of good for us. But um, the parts that are problems, we manage in different ways at different times of life. So a lot of it, you know, you can go through and your life and have no symptoms at all if you, if you find treatments that work for you for PCOS. Wow. Well, I know my takeaway from this is all the, the women out there who do have this condition should have hope. Like you've provide that it's hard, it's complex, you got to take your time, figure out what works for you. And but I definitely, you know, hope people take away from this that there is hope. What would be your takeaway that that you would want um, women to to have uh, in listening to this episode? Yeah, I think the most important thing is focus on the strengths that it gives you and not so much on it being only a negative thing. Um, it really is a genetic variation that our environment is not really conducive to supporting. So try and th- look at the positives and don't get too uh, focused on some of the fear that you'll read online because a lot of the times when you read these things, people are trying to sell you something and fear is a very um, effective way to do that. So really like dig into things that you're reading and just make sure before you believe something that's making you feel anxious or worried that it's coming from a legitimate source. Um, But yeah, like there is so much you can do. Have hope because every single element of this can be really well managed. So just like keeping your you know, looking at that as, as something that has good and bad things to it, just like anything else. Um, and knowing that there's a lot that you can do. Um, so yeah, don't let anything get you down that you might, might be reading, uh, online, especially these days. Yeah. Wow. Um, this was even more amazing. I knew it was going to be an amazing discussion, but even more amazing, um, than I could have ever imagined. And so I really appreciate your dedication to this area. I appreciate that you've written this book. And for those listening, there are so many resources in your book and on your website and obviously your, the book itself. And so I'm going to put all of that in my show notes and where people can follow you on social media. Um, but Fiona, Truly, thank you. I'm so glad that Lara Bryden introduced us. So thank you, Lara, for that. And Dr. Pryor as well for all your work. Um, Great discussion and and keep at it. And I hope that everyone took such great things, um, took away such great things out of today. Thank you so much, Georgie, uh, for making this awesome podcast and for inviting me. I'm super excited to just see where you go with it. Thank you so much. All the best. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com. Drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.